From the Institute for Research on Public Policy, this is the Policy Options Podcast. Je m'appelle Charles Breton, je suis le directeur du Centre d'excellence sur la Fédération canadienne à l'IRPP. Tensions within a federation, whether between provinces, states and their central government, or between two or more provinces or subnational units, are a frequent, normal occurrence. One just has to think, for instance, about the long-standing debate in Canada over healthcare funding or equalization. But recent weeks have seen perhaps more tensions than usual in the Canadian Federation, or at least since the constitutional debates of the past. In Alberta, Daniel Smith was elected as the leader of the United Conservatives and became premier in part by proposing to implement an Alberta Sovereignty Act. In Saskatchewan, Premier Scott Moe followed up on his expressed desire for Saskatchewan to be a nation within a nation and released a document on provincial autonomy entitled Drawing the Line. And this is leaving aside the re-election of Premier Legault in Quebec, who, while moving away from his sovereignist past, was elected by presenting himself as the defender of a strong, autonomous Quebec. So all these calls for more provincial autonomy in the face of a federal government that has not been shy about using its fiscal resources to bring about policy changes, sometimes in areas of provincial jurisdiction. So there's a feeling that something's got to give, but, but is that it? I mean, this is not our first rodeo. So how do federations like ours, countries with tensions that are inherent to federalism as an institution, how do they injure? How do they adapt? What are the features of a robust federation? This week's podcast seeks to answer these questions with a return to the fundamentals of federalism as an institutional arrangement. We're doing so with two outstanding speakers, each with unique expertise on the matter. The first is Jenna Bedner, who is a professor of political science at the University of Michigan. Professor Bedner is one of the foremost scholars of federalism, and her research focuses on the analysis of institutions and the theoretical underpinnings of the stability of federal states. She is the author of The Robust Federation, Principles of Design. Notre deuxième intervenant est Benoît Pelletier. Monsieur Pelletier est professeur de droit à l'Université d'Ottawa. Il a aussi été ministre au sein du gouvernement québécois, entre autres aux affaires intergouvernementales, et est l'auteur de plusieurs livres qui touchent au fédéralisme et à la Fédération canadienne. Il a donc à la fois une vue sur le fond de la question et sur la pratique du fédéralisme au pays. This podcast is based on an online event held by the Canada School of Public Service. It is the first in a series created through a partnership between the Canada School of the Public Service and the Center of Excellence on the Canadian Federation at DIRPP on contemporary issues in Canadian federalism. This podcast is also bilingual. Les interlocuteurs parlent dans leur langue maternelle et de mon côté, je m'adresse à eux aussi de la même façon. Alors voilà, merci d'être à l'écoute. Today for this first event, we're, we're laying out the foundations. We're going over the fundamentals of federalism. Later in the series, we'll, we'll delve into uh, the nitty-gritty of, of intergovernmental relations, whether on healthcare or the role of municipalities, for instance. But today, that's not necessarily the goal. Today, we stay in, in some ways at a higher level. Um, again, thinking about what federalism is, what it means, and how it evolves in the face of challenges. So uh, we'll proceed in the following manner. Jenna will get us started with a discussion of her work on federalism and the characteristics of, of robust federations. Benoît ira ensuite d'observation euh, sur le cas canadien, développant un peu plus sur notre expérience à nous avec les principes du fédéralisme. Puis on va passer ensuite à une discussion que je, vais, que je vais modérer sur les enjeux soulevés pendant les présentations et ensuite aux questions que vous aurez pour euh, nos panélistes. Jenna, over to you. I'm going to start maybe in an un unusual way by saying what might be on some of your minds, although you, you may not feel comfortable saying it out loud. 
So I'll just say it. Federalism is a pain. It's totally annoying, right? The provinces are mischief makers. Uh, they create headaches. I'm a political scientist, and this view of subnational entities as troublemakers is the overwhelming view of my colleagues. So for those of you who somewhere inside of you say, yeah, you know, yeah, I, guess, I think I feel a little bit that way, you're in very good company with an awful lot of scholars, including me to a certain extent. So a lot of political science and legal scholarship is about how to overcome the problems that federalism creates. But what I want to do today is give you a slightly different view. Um, and, and that is, I want, to, I want to take you from this sense of annoyance to first an appreciation for the competition, which you're probably already sensing, competition between the subnational governments and the federal government. But then I want to take you to maybe a new place, which is of collaboration. If our view of federalism is that it's annoy an annoyance, if that's the diagnosis, then what the clearest remedy to that is to minimize the autonomy of the subnational units. If instead you say, like it or not, I have to embrace the autonomy of these subnational governments formally as expressed, you know, in organized through the provinces, but also I think it's quite interesting to think about the role that regional governments um, and city governments play in this federal system. As soon as we embrace that, uh, then we have to accept that these different units are going to have differing interests from the whole. And then we open up the likelihood, the certainty, um, that those interests will clash and they're going to compete for supremacy. So most federal constitutions have provisions for legal supremacy of the federal law. Um, the feder feds often can just simply dominate subnational law by invoking their constitutional dominance, whether it's by pointing to convenient constitutional clauses or through uh, other kinds of things like preemption. Um, and, and where that is not available... Uh, federal governments increasingly, we're seeing this a lot in the United States, are can use their powers of the purse. That is, they can buy their preferred policy um, generally by putting out the carrot of new money uh, with strings attached, policy strings attached for the subnational governments to take, um, or sometimes by withholding money or that had ordinarily been committed unless new conditions are met. And so when the federal government asserts itself, overwhelming subnationals and winning this competition by force, what's lost? What's the downside of that? Of course, you know, we, we know everybody has, uh, understands that the first reason anyone trots out for why we might want a federal system is to tailor policy to fit local conditions, local preferences. Um, that's, you know, the oldest and most cited reason for federalism. And so if the federal government is suppressing the expression of those interests, that's considered to be a loss. But there's also uh, a loss of learning. So some policies and practices developed at the subnational level turn out to be really good ideas. And as we're in this world where policies are increasingly complex, where it's hard to see the right thing to do, there are federal interests um, 
that are distinct from provincial or, or city interests. And so the ends that you might want to achieve and the means, the policy means for getting there may differ. But there is, you know, at the meta level, um, stepping back, one thing that you all hold in common, which is you as, as public servants want to create good policy. That is, you want to make appropriate policy, effective policy that works for the people that you serve. And so hanging on to that thought means acceptance that of some of the goods that federalism can offer, tailoring policy and learning. And sometimes those goals do align. And you can literally work together uh, with the different capacities that local, provincial, and federal governments have to achieve those common ends. So good policymaking is a collaborative effort. And there's one more collaborative effort that has, you know, unfortunately, the United States really um, become a, a major preoccupation of ours, which is the democracies in crisis. And with democracy in crisis, you know, if we think about what's holding democracy together and, and what's preventing the emergence of an authoritarian state, uh, fragmenting power, certainly at the national level, is quite effective. But the last backstop in the United States or in, a, in, in our federal system against authoritarianism is federalism. And, um, you know, if you, if you paid attention to the 2020 elections, um, which were so concerning, there were many heroes, but I, I, uh, I'd say the real heroes of that election were in a number of states, the state secretaries of state, which is the office that's in charge of administering the elections in each of the states, were our heroes standing up and first running a very clean, transparent election, and then saying, the people have spoken, and saying it quite firmly, both Democrats and Republicans. So if subnationals are dismissed and diminished for being nuisances, um, we lose these opportunities for collaboration. So these upsides or these opportunities that federalism creates rely on kind of paradoxically, the downside of federalism, which is its diversity. Um, that is, diversity is both federalism's greatest challenge and its greatest strength. Uh, because in order for the system to work well, you need to have these diverse inputs. Learning can't happen without trying different things, the input of different perspectives. Collaboration is made more effective when each team member, here the federal government and the subnational governments, uh, brings its own strengths to the effort. And democracy can't be preserved if there's no internal pushback, no diversity of argument. So diversity is a benefit of a federal system that has to be preserved. So that takes me to kind of the last big point I want to offer, which is thinking about, okay, what holds this whole thing together? Um, some safeguards. So while we're embracing competition, we need to have some way of keeping the action, the, uh, the policies and um, activities of each of these components of the system in check, in bounds, right? And importantly, what counts as in bounds uh, will change over time. 
The meaning of the Constitution, the way that it limits the government's power over all uh, and its duties to the people, as well as the relationship between the component units of government, the federal government and the subnational governments, um, will need to change over time in, in response to our changing demands. Um, I, I mentioned climate change earlier, right? Uh, but, he, but including our own preferences, what, what we as people want from our government. And as our preferences change, so should, in the federalism context, the assignment of power. So there is no optimal constitution, no one, certainly no one size fits all constitution to fit all federal systems, but no one constitution that's going to work for a particular country over time. Um, so it needs to be able to evolve. So what that means is we're looking for a system of safeguards that's flexible, that allows for this change while still preventing opportunism. That is this exploitation of that flexibility, that discretion for private gain. So that means we need a system that is not fixed or stable, but instead is robust one that is adaptive, but still capable of um, being strong enough to uh, keep in the realm of what we consider to be constitutional. So this robust system will tolerate, not just tolerate, but embrace uh, some deviations. It's hard to accept it, I know, uh, because that's going to mean in this system there are going to be things, actions taken by some other governments that you don't like, <laughs> um, but uh, and and including some differing interpretations of what is constitutional. That is, the Constitution itself is breathing, is evolving, is changing, um, and that change comes from trying out different meanings of it. Um, but at the same time, if you can imagine the metaphor of a ping pong game, uh, a game of ping pong, and you want to keep the ping pong ball on the table, it doesn't mean that it's always bouncing in the same spot. There's a lot of room for tolerance of diversity, but you want to keep it from falling off the table. So that's what a system of safeguards can do. And I have to say, you know, uh, when we think about safeguards, we traditionally think about them as managing this competition. And so to manage this competition, um, there's no single safeguard that works uh, for a, a, long, a, a good period of the 20th century. Legal scholarship, of course, tended to say it's the courts who are the umpires um, because they're uh, the ones we traditionally think of as being the interpreters of the Constitution and therefore what is unconstitutional. But we, uh, as we're trying to keep that ping pong ball on the table, we can think of some other kinds of safeguards. That is, those that first constrain uh, the governments from um, taking actions that are out of bounds. Uh, so by fragmenting authority at the national level, which most uh, federal uh, systems do, uh, that's a way of first building in checks uh, on overt exercise of authority that 
given the advantages that the federal government has over the subnational governments, um, it's just kind of like an internal check. Uh, second, it offer offers opportunities for subnational input, depending on how the institutions are constructed. Uh, the party system is a way of creating dialogue and some checks uh, between the levels of government. Uh, and at the end of the day, the people, the people themselves interpret the Constitution. And actually, it's you all, Canadians, are, are much more likely, I think, than Americans to be able to express opinions that are well considered about constitutionality. Um, unless you're talking about maybe the Second Amendment, Americans aren't really uh, very good, the Second Amendment being the one about um, uh, regulation of firearms and possession of firearms. Other than that, I really uh, haven't had too many conversations with the general public um, that are constitutional. Um, but we, the public, the voting public, are in a position to be able to um, regulate our, uh, our government's actions and try to keep that ping pong ball on the table. So these safeguards, no single one is sufficient, um, but they reinforce and complement one another. Now, um, and I'll just close with this, that's really about regulating competition. When we're talking about collaboration, and taking advantage of these opportunities for these um, different levels of government to work together. That's a different kind of idea. And, and safeguards, um, safeguard might not even be the right term for this, but it's an extension of the safeguards argument to think about ways of channeling that competition into aligned action. So just to recap, uh, I have tried to suggest as annoying as federalism may seem at times, first, it's a reality. It's a part of our political identity. Um, and so managing the competition that results from that um, is, is possible, but we may even be able to move to a point where we find opportunities to transform competition into collaboration in the creation of policy that is effective and appropriate. So thanks. Thank you, uh, Jenna. I, I noted uh, when you said that um, federalism is a problem-solving mechanism, because I think that was one of the reasons why we ended up with, a feder with federalism in this country. But I think that we tend to kind of lose track nowadays of, of that aspect of it as a problem-solving mechanism. Um, and, and we'll get back to that when we go to the question. Um, alors, nous allons maintenant nous tourner vers, vers M. Pelletier, Benoît Pelletier, pour mettre tout ça dans le, dans le contexte canadien, même si Jenna a, a, avait quand même des, des, des choses à dire sur le Canada, avec votre connaissance du pays. M. Pelletier, je vous, je vous passe la parole, ce sera à vous maintenant. Merci, Charles. Euh, merci, Jenna, pour uh, votre présentation. Uh, thank you for having invited me to this uh, conference and thank you for being here. I uh, will give you my perspective about uh, Canadian federalism. And through my perspective, there will be the Quebec perspective, because I've been part of uh, Quebec's politics during uh, 10 years. I was a minister in the Quebec government for six years. I'll come back to that experience in a few minutes. But I'll give you my uh, own thought about what are the foundations of federalism. First, in order to understand what federalism is about, we should start from the, the concept of a state. 
And I, here I, I use that concept as meaning a country. Of course, I'm not talking about the different states that compose the United States. Uh, I'm talking, uh, uh, when I use the word state here, it's uh, as a meaning of country. In constitutional law, we consider that a state has and is a full sovereignty that expresses itself internally and externally. What I mean here is this. Le concept d'État en droit constitutionnel, c'est un concept que nous décrivons comme étant une souveraineté totale qui s'exprime sur le plan interne, c'est-à-dire à, à l'intérieur de l'État, et sur le plan externe, c'est-à-dire sur la scène internationale. C'est une constitution qui, en fait, distribue les législatives pouvoirs entre le fédéral ordre du gouvernement et les provinces. Mais les provinces sont souveraines au Canada, mais il ne faut pas être compris que Québec n'est pas juste une province. Uh, Quebec is also defined by the House of Commons and defines itself as a nation. So there is a nation within the nation. And it's the same thing that Alberta tries to do uh, those days with, uh, uh, I would say, the expression of a new nationalism. Alberta tries to define itself as being a nation within the nation. So I uh, uh, hear you saying, well, uh, is it possible that a nation exists within another nation? Well, yes. What about the First Nations? What about the Aboriginals, but the indigenous, the indigenous people, as we now uh, call them? Uh, what about the indigenous people? They form nations within Canada. They form nations within the nation. Canada is a nation, that's for sure. But uh, indigenous people also are described in the Canadian constitution as people, and Quebec has been recognized, the Quebecois have been recognized as a nation by the House of Commons of Canada. One of the problems in Canada is that many Canadians see Canada as a unitary state. Uh, what I mean here is that they see Canada as being composed almost exclusively by the federal government and the Parliament of Canada, and, and they are in favor of more centralization of powers in the country, they are in favor of uh, the uh, preponderance of uh, federal uh, powers over the provinces. Some Canadians even ignore the existence of the provinces. When I, when I teach constitutional law and I, I talk about Canada, most of my students at the beginning, they only think about uh, Justin Trudeau and his government. They forget the provinces completely. They forget that the provinces are part of the Canadian experience, and not just that. They are part of the definition of Canada as a federal state. 
diversity is at the basis of a federal state. If a federal state is a federal state and not a unitary state, that's because it initially wants to promote its intrinsic, its intrinsic diversity. So that diversity should not be ignored. It should be respected. It should be promoted. And in the case of Canadian federalism, if you ask yourself, what was the main reason for the creation of a federation in Canada in 1867? Well, I will tell you that one of the main reasons was Quebec. Could you imagine? Quebec was one of the main reasons why the fathers of the Canadian Federation chose federalism in 1867 instead of, unit, of the unitary model. So what it means is this. It means that Quebec specificity is not something that is not something that is incompatible with federalism. It's something that explains Canadian federalism fully. And that explains why in 1867, we chose the federal model instead of the unitary model. Thank you. Uh, merci, merci, Benoit. Um, so, I, so you ended, you ended by talking about again, and those are terms also that Jenna used: um, embracing diversity, embracing autonomy. I want to talk a bit about the flip side of that. Uh, and Jenna, you talked, you touched a bit on on the safeguard and the systems of safeguards. Again, keeping in mind, and to me, I was reading those as safeguards to ensure that we embrace autonomy, that we embrace diversity. But again, the flip side is. How does how do we keep a federation going to keep how do we keep it, keep it robust and stable when embracing that diversity and embracing that that, that autonomy as the potential to just have the whole thing explode? Yeah. All right. Well, you're really asking me to go out on a limb as an American to explain why Canadian federalism is in uh, your view. Been... <laughs> but but let me let me just start by. Um... Oh. You know, speaking semantically about what robustness is and is not. Uh, so robustness um, is not something that is uh, guaranteed to be successful. Uh, and in fact, you know, for for those of us who are engaged in um, robustness science, we are always aware of the uh, this kind of relationship between robustness and stability, that it's all robust systems are also fragile. And it's a question of um, how do you how do you manage that fragility? And so uh, in in uh, any federal context, what that's going to mean is that you can never take anything for granted, um, that any government requires work. And, uh, you know, we haven't we haven't gotten that much into it. But the, uh, at the end of the day, all these institutions that I've described and, this, the, you know, the law that Benoit and I have been talking about um, are only as strong as the public that's behind it, uh, and it's it, because it relies on legitimacy, and it relies on the internalization and expression of norms, norms of democracy, and norms of uh, valuing federalism, including valuing diversity. 
And I will say here uh, that on the U.S. side, we have a real handicap in kind of our cultural identity uh, because our cultural identity has been very much a culture of a maverick, of a self-reliant cowboy, um, of the resistor, uh, you know, we, the revolution against Britain, right? Uh, and what this means, I, I think, in this context of um, where federalism depends so much on norms of embracing diversity is that that uh, that maverick or cowboy view is ultimately um, harmful, as we find increasingly in the United States that we need to lean on these norms of uh, collectivist norms, uh, norms of, that are pro-social and, and caring for one another, and in this enterprise that we can build together. And so, and here's where I'm going out on a limb, and you know, bear with me, I'm um, because my. my there was a time when I really wanted to move to Canada. I would still entertain uh, invitations, adoring Canada as I am, but I'm an outsider. But I think Canada may have some uh, advantage, as I perceived it as an outsider, um, of tolerating difference much better than uh, in the United States, of, of having some kind of... Um, it's nearly universally held view that uh, we don't expect everybody to become identical with one another. Um, that and that Canada is strong. Actually, you know, as Ben Wassel beautifully pointed out, Canada exists as it is today because of those differences, and it is strong because of these differences. But that's also very fragile, um, and and so uh, so while it's robust. It has this fragility that requires constant, continuous work to maintain. And, and, and that's, that's interesting. And, and continuous work and, and this capacity to adapt. Benoît uh, Jenna uh, parle beaucoup de cette nécessité-là pour les fédérations de pouvoir s'adapter, de ne pas être rigide. Pour vous, quels sont les éléments qui permettent à la fédération canadienne de s'adapter? Ces éléments-là qui lui permettent de ne pas être rigide, ou peut-être qu'au contraire, vous pensez qu'elle est trop rigide, mais il y a sûrement des éléments dans les institutions de la fédération canadienne qui lui permettent de s'adapter, n'est-ce pas? Oui. La question m'est adressée, Charles. Oui, tout à fait. Oui, merci. Alors, d'abord, je dois dire que euh, Jenna a, a tout à fait raison de parler de, de robustesse euh, du régime fédéral. I like very much that concept of robust uh, federalism. Um, uh, to me, a robust federalism is a flexible federalism. Mm -hmm. And it is robust because it is flexible. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think that we, I, I think that Jenna and I share the same point of view on this, uh, on this question. Um, uh, what I mean here is this. I mean that uh, federalism should be able to uh, adapt itself to the different socio-demographic and socio-political contexts that exist within it. Uh, and, um, and, and, and as, for example, Canada should see uh, Quebec's specificity as being, as being a, an asset, as being something that is uh, beneficial for the country. And when I was in politics, I uh, promoted 
entre le fédéralisme asymétrique. Le fédéralisme asymétrique, ce n'est pas un fédéralisme asymétrique à tout cran. Ce n'est pas un fédéralisme asymétrique à tous azimuts, mais c'est un fédéralisme qui réussit à s'adapter aux différents besoins des, des provinces canadiennes, euh, tout en gardant évidemment des valeurs communes, tout en gardant des richesses euh, communes, tout en gardant euh, un pouvoir euh, fédéral euh, qui, est, qui soit substantiel et qui soit fort. So, this concept of asymmetrical federalism is something that, uh, in fact, some federalists uh, did not adhere to. Some federalists uh, opposed that concept of asymmetrical federalism that I uh, promoted when I was in politics. But in my view, the future of Canada uh, resides in, in such a concept. So if I, if I understood correctly, what, what you meant, what, what you were saying is that for you, the main, one of the main tools that Canada has to be robust and to, and, and to be flexible uh, is, would probably be the possibility of asymmetrical federalism the way you understand it, right? Is that, is that what you would say? That that's probably one of the best tools it has to, to recognize some of the specificities for Quebec, but for other provinces as well? Yes, and it goes through uh, administrative agreements or intergovernmental agreements. At some point, asymmetry is something that, uh, in fact, uh, goes against the principle of federalism. Mm -hmm. Too much asymmetry is not good for federalism, as uh, as much as uh, too much centralization is not good for federalism. So I, I promote a limited form of asymmetrical federalism, yes. Um, so I want to go back. So, Jenna, you mentioned climate change, and, and I want to talk about, like, perhaps new challenges that are different from perhaps the historical ones that both whether the U.S. or Canada have had with federalism. And I wonder about climate change in the sense that is that, is climate change a new type of federalism? Like climate change is, is new in a way, but as a type of problem that federation federations need to, um, uh, uh, to, 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 deal, to deal with. Uh, is, is, is that one new, like a new type of challenge that, that federation have to deal with? Or is there any other kind of new challenges that are really proper to this era we're in, uh, that are the product of the era we're in that federations are, are, are dealing with or need to contend with? Uh, this is a super rich question, and um, but I, I actually wanted to say one more thing about yeah, yeah, just yeah, yeah. about what Benoit was just saying uh, because uh, so so Charles, I'm going to get back to your question. No, perfect. Yes. But I may I may misremember part of it. So uh, uh, um, uh, hold on, I'm just making a note to myself. Oh, I can um, I can repeat myself too. I'm, okay, I'm but <laughs> but just thinking about asymmetrical federalism because it's not something that we. Uh, it, like a legally asymmetric federation, meaning that there are, are different um, legal arrangements and um, uh, rights and responsibilities from one province to another. And, and so if I were to take this to the typical American, they would think that was crazy uh, because we don't have that. Uh, but it, it, we do have it in a de facto sense. So when I was when I was talking about the power of the purse or you know the, the use of the spending powers, um, there are some states that are much better insulated 
uh, than others, you know, like California for sure, right? A massive economy. Um, it is not as dependent on the federal government. And in fact, the federal government is much more dependent on, on cash flows from uh, the people of California to it to be redistributed out. And so it puts it in a pretty privileged position. And so we, I think we might argue that in the United States, we have de facto asymmetric federalism. And if that's the case, maybe that's not very fair. And one would want to address it through some legal uh, acknowledgement um, in, in the way that, that Benoit was proposing. So I, I think that I, that's super interesting, and it may be a way of making the whole system more just, even though one's initial reaction to it might be, wait, that means you're going to privilege one province over another. But instead, it may be some way of making it um, uh, behave in a more equitable way. So I just wanted to, to uh, uh, say thank you uh, to Benoit for that, because it's, it's got me thinking about the U.S. Federal, uh, Federation a little bit differently. Now, back to this question, um, is climate change a different kind of problem uh, for polities and for federal systems in particular? And, and I think that you also asked, is there anything else that is like this? Um, well, I would say, first, is there anything else like this? In the U.S. context, we are really in the midst of a massive reckoning uh, over our racist past. And that racist past is very much linked to federalism. And uh, because even as some states were moving forward uh, toward equity, um, a hundred years before others, uh, and and then finally with the U.S. Congress um, taking uh, a firm stance uh, um, uh, against um, discriminatory practices in some of the southern states, it just you know it took a pretty heavy hand um, of denying autonomy to some states um, in order to make that correction. And a legacy of that, frankly, has been uh, that the progressives in the United States have abandoned federalism for them. Remember, I opened with federalism is annoying. Well, they would they have they would have much juicier words uh, to describe how they feel about federalism. And so, for them, anything happening at the state level was had the possibility of going off the rails into in a racist direction. And so they um, have always practiced a strategy of wanting to centralize things. Um, so uh, um, that's a more complicated conversation, but one that I, I thought I'd put out there um, as far as climate change goes, you know, as I said, with, with climate change, our, um, our thought is, well, this is, this is a global problem. And so we need to take this, the solution making to it to the highest level possible, right? The uh, um, and, and that's a that's a um, not just a, an intuitive um, reaction, but it's it's probably approximately the right one. But the question is, do you want to leave behind the local? And some, you know, state or provincial governments. As you move in this, that is, do we want just centralization, or do we want collaboration? And I think that this is a perfect example of when we need collaboration because climate change. You, 
you could walk me through the effects in Canada, but I, I can take you around the map in the United States. And, you know, starting with just earlier this, this week with the hurricane in Florida and the droughts in the West and the forest fires and, um, you know, the general decline in water availability in the West, but then in the East, water abundance, catastrophic water abundance um, with flooding and erosion, et cetera. Um, this is all connected to climate change, but it's playing out very differently. The only way we're going to build the political will to addressing, to making the change that we need to make nationally is by embracing the realities on the ground, having people say, this right here is the problem that we need to work on, and then helping everybody see just how linked that is. But so I see this as a perfect opportunity to promote a collaborative process uh, over a competitive one. And in a way, uh, what you're saying is that, yes, we need a national approach, but a national approach doesn't need to be a federal one coming from the federal government. I see you both noting, which I guess means I'm right. Um, <laughs> Benoît, de votre côté, est-ce que vous voyez, vous, euh, des, euh, des, des défis pour la Fédération canadienne qui sont peut-être différents euh, de ceux auxquels on a été habitué par, par le passé ou c'est plutôt les mêmes défis qui reviennent et peut-être que la solution n'est pas toujours la même, mais ça semble toujours le même défi, celui, comme vous en avez parlé plus tôt, euh, celui d'embrasser de, 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 l'autonomie des, 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 des provinces et la diversité? Ou est-ce que, est que vous envoyez des nouveaux défis peut-être qui vont demander à la Fédération canadienne de s'adapter peut-être différemment? Oui, bien entendu. Euh, vous avez mentionné euh, le dossier des changements climatiques à titre d'exemple, qui est un bel exemple euh, où justement il peut y avoir une meilleure collaboration fédérale-provinciale et il doit y avoir une meilleure collaboration fédérale-provinciale. Je pense également au dossier des armes à feu dont on discute beaucoup euh, par les temps qui courent. Euh, il y a beaucoup de beaux dossiers. Le dossier des... En fait, le dossier autochtone est un dossier qui va occasionner littéralement une révolution du droit. Mm -hmm. uh, we used to uh, think uh, about Canada as being uh, uh, two official languages and... Uh, Uh, a linguistic uh, duality and um, uh, the, um, the, the Francophones, the Anglophones, and so on and so forth. But the, the indigenous people are going to uh, provoke a real revolution of the way we see Canada. Uh, the dualistic view of Canada is will have to be Uh, uh, reviewed in the light of, of the uh, emergence of the indigenous people in Canada. Il va y avoir une véritable révolution du droit à la lumière du dossier autochtone, j'en suis convaincu, et je dirais que c'est le plus gros défi auquel le Canada va devoir faire face. I want to go back to something that Jenna said. At, 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 I can't remember if it was, I don't think it was in your presentation. It was later in, in, in an answer to a question where we were talking about, about the people as being also a safeguard. And, and um, I want to talk about that role a bit and, and the role of people in making a federalism robust and, and not politicians, but like actual Canadians and citizens. Uh, 
by definition, the central or the federal government is is further away from citizens. It's 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 in their everyday life. That's not necessarily what they see, right? The same way that their municipal governments is much more present in their everyday life than their provincial government. But how does a federation go about keeping those people committed to it? Yeah, this is a, a um, very tricky question. Uh, tricky in a lot of ways. The um, Because, it, you know, in a federal system, we don't want, just want people to identify with the federal government, but also, mm-hmm. right, sorry, with the national government on its own, like kind of in, in, in the way that Benoit was talking about with with um, the younger people just thinking, you know, I, I, thinking of Ottawa as being all there is. Uh, mm-hmm. um, the, uh, uh, you know, what we used to have is a um, civic education. Uh, that happened in our public schools and that uh, helped people to, to to develop a common understanding of our shared past and our common future uh, for a lot of reasons that has been broken apart in the United States. I'm not sure where that stands in Canada. Um, and it's, it's, um, it's actually uh, uh, because I care so much and believe so much in um, the significance of democratic norms in sustaining our democracy um, and that norms are things that are built and reinforced person to person. I now, I mean, it's separate work and stuff that I'm early days on, but I'm trying to better understand how um, through local communities, we can build an inclusive federalism. Uh, so, you know, one of the one of the concerns is if you if you decentralize too much, then you create uh, like a fortress federalism. You create abilities for people to band together, identify with one another, and against everybody else. And that's that competitive, or even worse, right? Um, a kind of um, dynamic that can be destructive or can cause us to miss opportunities. And so I'm trying to better understand how we might, instead of building this fortress federalism, build one that's porous, build a sense of local identity, but that recognizes our interdependence with others, um, and uh, I guess all I can say is stay tuned. I mean, the, the first step for all of us in political science is recognizing this as being a need. <laughs> um, and then from there, we can move forward in, in, in trying to better understand what, how um, to build those values and those norms um, to, you know, for me as a very concerned American, to try to reconstruct um, uh, um, the, the bulwarks that support our democracy. This is it for this edition of the Policy Options Podcast. Je voudrais remercier nos deux intervenants, Jenna Bedner et Benoît Pelletier. Je souhaite également remercier l'École de la fonction publique du Canada, l'hôte de cet événement et notre partenaire dans cette série sur les enjeux contemporains du fédéralisme canadien. Merci à vous d'avoir été à l'écoute.